0: Good morning. I think we can all agree, though, that uh, the past 18 months or so have been kind of exhausting. It's a time of great confusion and anger in the world around us. And I know speaking personally, the, not just the past 18 months, the past few years, my life has changed so much, sometimes it feels like the whole world is off its axis and out of balance. And in times of confusion and anger, I know there are many of us who are desperately looking for something to cling to and something to believe in. And most of us here in a church, we would profess, well, we're Christians, and so we know that those answers, those things we're looking for, we should be able to find those things in church. But if we're honest, sometimes, sometimes we just don't find them. We see scandal and strife in the church, and it may make us wonder sometimes, is Is Christianity worth it? Is this this actually worth it? We're tired. We want to avoid conflict. And sometimes if we want to spend time with people, we just want to spend time with people who think exactly the same way we do about everything and who have the same interest. And sometimes we don't find that at church. And maybe sometimes we think, I'm not getting much out of church, out of this Jesus thing. And maybe in these times of hardships, we look at those who are not Christians, those who aren't at church on Sunday morning, we think maybe maybe it's better for them. Maybe they have it easier. Maybe there's another way out there that's easier and that makes more sense. And you know what? It is okay to admit that you struggle. It's okay to admit that maybe you're struggling with the faith. Maybe you're struggling with staying in church. It's okay to admit that because there are no perfect People here, and you don't have to have all the answers and everything figured out in your life to be a part of what's happening here. It's okay to struggle and ask questions, but please don't stay there. Seek the answers to your questions and to your hurt. You may wonder, is Christianity worth it? And I'm here to tell you there is an answer to that, and the answer is yes, it is. And the reason it is is because Jesus is better. He is better than any other alternative that you could find. We're about to enter a new series looking at the book of Hebrews. This is a powerful letter that is laser focused on our Lord and Savior and how much better he is than anything else that we could think or imagine. And by knowing him better, we'll find encouragement and comfort so that we can live in this often strange and challenging world. And if we're to grow and thrive as followers of God, we must have the foundation set in our mind that Jesus is better than anything else that we could find. Now, you may pause for a second when I say that. You may say, why is he saying Jesus is better? Shouldn't we say Jesus is best, that he's the best there is, that he's the best option? Why are you just saying that he's better? And there's two reasons for that. One is we're looking at the book of Hebrews, and in the book of Hebrews, the word better or more, greater, shows up at least 25 times in this book. It's a main theme of the book we're looking at. But there's another reason why I think this is a great word, a great description to use, because better conveys more emotion than best. If I compare two things, we get to see more of our emotional involvement and what value we place on particular objects. Let me give you some silly examples. If I said the Philadelphia Eagles are the best football team, you may be like, okay, all right, Pastor John, you can think that, that, that's, fine. that, that that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. But if I say the Eagles are better than the Steelers, oh, oh, now, now we're upset. Now, if I say the Eagles are better than the Cowboys, oh, no, 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 now you've gone too far, Pastor. By saying better, I, I've revealed some of what we value. If I say the Star Wars movies are the best movies, you may say, okay, Pastor John, you can think that. But if I say Star Wars is better than Star Trek, well, some of you are now very upset that I would even suggest such a thing. If I say fall is the best season, you may say, okay, you can think that. If I say fall is better than spring or summer, you may go, like, oh, no, 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 Pastor, you don't know what you're talking about. When we say better, we see our emotion and our passion. We compare two things. And that type of comparison, that type of emotion that comes, that's how we should feel when we compare Jesus to everything else. And so my hope in this series as we go through Hebrews is every week the sermon title will probably be something, Jesus is better than something. And we'll talk about many things that we are tempted to care about more than Jesus, but that in reality Jesus is better than. And when we look at these comparisons will give us hope for the future. But for this week, we're just going to talk about why is Jesus better. So let's find out. If you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. We're just looking at verses 1 through 3 today. Hebrews 1. And once you are there, I'd ask that if you are able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I read our passage. You can look at it in the Bible, the words will also be up on the screen. So we're in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. This book begins like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have spoken through your word And what you have said is that Jesus is better. I thank you, Lord, that he is better because he is God. And I pray that you teach us that he is better because his work is finished. Lord, thank you for the full, complete revelation we have of you in your son. Help us to see him, to know him more, and realize that any other alternative we could find or seek, that he is better. Help us to see him that he may increase in our time together. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray, amen. You may be seated. Since it's our first week in this book, I'm gonna take just a few moments here to talk about the book of Hebrews. That's where we are, we're in the letter that is given the title in ancient literature was to the Hebrews is the title that was attached to it. We don't really know who, what human author wrote this book There are many, many suggestions and theories people have about who wrote it, and I could spend the full hour talking about all the different ideas, but the book doesn't tell us who wrote it, so I'm not going to spend time on speculation. And in fact, a very early church father who lived in the 200s A.D., so very soon after it was written, but named Origen, he said, who actually wrote the epistle? Only God knows. And so that's where we're going to leave it. It was most likely written sometime in the early to mid-60s A.D., so around the year 60, 61, 2, 3, 4, 5, something like that, so about 30 years or so after Jesus died and rose again. And this letter was written most likely to Jewish background believers, probably in the city of Rome. So these are people who were Jews, followers of Judaism, Hebrew people who became followers of Christ. We think this is true because there are a lot of Old Testament references in this book. There are 35 direct quotes from the Old Testament, and at least that many allusions, summaries, names of people. So why was somebody writing to these Jewish background believers? Well, it seems there was a time of increased persecution and pressure on followers of Christ. That society around them was pressuring them for their beliefs and their way of life based on a verse in the book, it doesn't seem like anybody had actually died for their faith in this particular city. But that would come very soon. And it was very hard for these believers. Christianity was in some ways a new faith. It was very different. And these Hebrew people were tempted to go back to Judaism, to go back to their old way of life where things made sense and they weren't confused and they weren't separated from their family. They were tempted to go back. Following Jesus was just too hard. And so the author of this book, whoever he is, is writing. And this book is more of a sermon to the people than it is a letter. It doesn't start like a normal letter with the author identifying himself. It's more like a sermon that's been put on page. And the author is striving to persuade them that Jesus is better and that they should stay with him and not go back to their old way of living. One scholar, David Chapman, cut Puts the theme this way, and I thought it summarizes it well, so you can see what we're going to be talking about as we go through this book. The point of the book is that Christ is greater than any angel, any priest, any old covenant, old way of relating with God, an institution there. And so, each reader, rather than leaving that great salvation, they're summoned to hold on by faith. The author's calling them to hold on to the true rest that can be found in Christ. And they're also to encourage others in the church to persevere. That's the theme, that Christ is greater and that they should hold on to the faith. I was having a conversation with Jay a few weeks ago about doing this book, and he shared something I assume he heard somewhere, and I'm going to paraphrase him a little, that the book of Hebrews was written by a Hebrew to tell the Hebrews that they no longer had to be Hebrews. So it's a Hebrew person who's writing to this group of people, the Hebrews, telling them you don't need to go back to that old way of life. You should stick with Jesus because he is better. Your new identity in him is better. Now, if we're being realistic, probably very few or none of us are tempted to go and become Jews. That's not really a temptation we have to go back to Judaism. Most of us probably didn't come out of that. But there are other things that may slip into our life that we think are better than Christ. It could be our work or a hobby. It could be money. It could be a particular relationship. These things can become more important than Jesus. And when we feel that temptation, the message of Hebrews speaks to us. And it first tells us that Jesus is better because God has spoken. Jesus is better because God has spoken spoken. He has spoken. We see this in verse 1 in the first part of verse 2. Remember it said, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The passage we're looking at today, really verses 1 through 4, it's all one sentence It's very poetic, it's a poetic sentence. It sounds similar to kind of the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Or maybe even John 1, Uh, in the beginning the word was with God, the word was God. Long ago and many times in many ways. It's poetic, it draws you in. You can almost see that it's a sermon intended to capture an audience's attention. It uses similar words. And it tells us that long ago in the past God spoke to the fathers. The Hebrew people would have understood that to mean their ancestors in many times, and varied ways. But in these last final days, God has spoken by his Son. The author is saying, right now, followers of Christ, we see God's plan revealed. Sometimes we forget this, but according to Scripture, the way it uses the phrase, every moment since Christ, we've been living in the last era of world history, what's called the final days, the last days. We don't know exactly when it will end, but this entire period since Christ has come is called the last days in Scripture. And in this time, God has spoken, and he will save through his son, Jesus Christ. In these verses, the author sets up at least four contrasts here. He says, long ago versus the last days, right now. He talks about God spoke to our fathers, our ancestors, and now he has spoken to us. Before, God spoke by His prophets, people He had called to represent Him, but now He has spoken by His Son. In the past, He spoke many times many ways, but now He has spoken by His Son one way. There's a contrast here between how God's message was delivered in the Old Testament and how we see it now in the New. In the Old Testament, God spoke, inspired Old Testament authors in different times, different places to record His message To humanity. He did this in various ways. Sometimes he spoke to them and told them to write something down. Sometimes he gave them a vision. Maybe he showed them a miracle. Or if it was somebody who wasn't following him, maybe he brought a plague of judgment upon them. He might have spoken to somebody, given them a prophecy, a prediction of the future. Or maybe there's just a story that tells us about God and what he's like. The fathers, the ancestors of the Old Testament times received God's truth through these people who spoke to them. When it says prophets, it's not just talking about somebody who predicts the future, but somebody who's speaking God's message. But there was a problem. The story wasn't finished. There was something missing. And now, the author of our book is saying, something different and better has happened. God has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter said the same thing. He said about Jesus that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was made manifest, revealed in the last times, these last days, for the sake of you, those who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that now your faith and hope are in God. He has spoken through Jesus, revealed him so that we could have hope in God. After all, a son of God is much greater than a prophet. And God has spoken through his son. And Jesus has lived. His life on earth happened. It's over. It's done. His one act, what he did through his life on earth, dying for us, that saves and that is good news. God has spoken is the word. Jesus has acted. He has provided a way for us to know God. I apologize if you've heard me tell this story before, but a number of years ago, it was probably over 10 years ago now, I was out for a walk and I ran into two Mormon missionaries who were going around trying to tell people about their particular faith. And I ended up in a conversation with them. And they, they asked me, they, or they were trying to convince me to consider their faith in the Book of Mormon. And they said, well, you know, in the Old Testament, God spoke through, through prophets. He gave them message. He gave them truth. And then in the New Testament, he spoke through Jesus and the apostles. And all we're saying is that there's another prophet now that God has spoken through. And at the time, I I didn't really know how to respond to that. But now I do. How I should have responded is, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It's over. It's done. There's nothing more that is needed. Jesus is the final word. God has fully revealed his purposes in him. Nothing can be added. Nothing more is needed. He has divine equality with God. He's the culmination, the end goal of God's plan of redemption, his plan to save sinners. One scholar, Al Mohler, put it this way, the Old Testament is a story in need of conclusion, a messianic, a savior conclusion. Everything in the Old Testament builds up to Jesus, and in Christ, it is fulfilled. Now that doesn't mean that now we can, oh, we can throw that Old Testament away, but no, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of its promises. And we'll see that again and again in the book of Hebrews as it goes back and back to the Old Testament to say Jesus does this, Jesus fulfills this, he is better than this. If you want this on a on a level that's very easy to understand, I recommend checking out this book, The Jesus Storybook Bible. It's by a woman named Sally Lloyd Jones. It's one, it's a story bible for children but it's excellent because it goes through in the old testament and it tells the stories of the old testament but each story ends with a cliffhanger that this amazing thing happened but something was missing this wonderful thing happened but it seemed like we needed someone better to come along and it's building the tension the momentum to win christ would come i remember uh, re- recently looking at it and the very first story that's about Jesus' birth the chapter title is he's here Like, it's been building up to this moment. In the book of Hebrews, though, the author is encouraging the Hebrews to stay with Jesus, to not go looking for some other source of truth. The reality is, I'm I'm paraphrasing a pastor named Kevin DeYoung, that God speaks to us today less than we think and also more than we think. He speaks less in that he doesn't really speak to most of his people in dreams or prophets or impressions, but he speaks more because he has spoken through his Son, a better, clearer, sure word. And he still speaks to us through the Scriptures. We'll see that even here in the book of Hebrews. Much later, we'll get to chapter 12, which tells us about followers of Christ, that you have come to Jesus. He's the mediator, the go-between of a new covenant, a new agreement with God. We've come to his sprinkled blood, his death. That now speaks. His death speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, the first person who died. And the author of Hebrews says, so see that you do not refuse him, Jesus, who is speaking. He is still speaking through who he is, through what he has done. As he says, if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. God still speaks through his word, through the work of Christ. Jesus has spoken to us. His word is a personal communication and we don't need anything else. He's better than anything else that we could think of. So we should not seek some new special revelation from God. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but we do not need an angel. We do not need a special message from God. We don't need to hear about somebody else's trip to heaven or some seemingly miraculous thing that happened to them. All we need is Jesus Christ. As the Protestant reformer John Calvin said, when you come to Christ, you ought not to go farther. He is the finish; The end goal is coming to know Him. And when we study the Scripture and dwell on who Jesus is, we hear from God. I'm not saying you open the Bible and then God speaks in a booming voice. I'm not saying that to you. But in His Word, we see who He is. And do we realize what an immense honor and privilege that is? Christian, you who know God, you who have the Holy Spirit, you who have God's Word in front of you, you know more about God than all of those Old Testament saints that you read about. You do. You do. That is an immense privilege because you know Him and His Spirit lives in you. That's a challenge to us that we should love Him and also a challenge that we should share Him with others because we know that God has spoken through his son and we share because we have an amazing message that not only is Jesus better because God has spoken but Jesus is better because he is God Jesus is better because he is God he is God we saw we see this that Jesus is God in kind of the middle part of uh, the verses we were reading. So the second half of verse 2 and the first half of verse 3. We're talking about God is spoken by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After this first part that talks about God has spoken, the rest of the passage unpacks who Jesus is. And there's at least seven things it tells us about him, and we'll see him in this part and in the next section of verses. First, we're told Jesus has a unique status. We're told that God has appointed him. He is the heir who will inherit all that God has created. Jesus is much more than a profound man, than a good teacher. He is God's son, his rightful heir. God has promised it all to him. He will possess everything because he is the one true king. Some of you may have been here on Wednesday night. We started the new Bible study talking about biblical stewardship. And kind of the foundational point that we hammered this past week is that God owns everything and not us. We don't actually own what we think we own. God is the one who owns everything. That was the main point we made. But according to this passage here, God is going to share it with someone. He's giving it all to Jesus because Jesus is his heir. Later in this chapter, Hebrews 1, we'll have a quote from the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 2-7. But let's look at that passage, Psalm 2-7 and 8, and we'll see this idea that Jesus is the heir repeated. In that passage, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. That's what Jesus has. All the nations, the ends of the earth. And now there is no good on earth that can be found apart from him. He has everything that he needs to reign and rule. There's not something missing in Jesus. He has it all. He is that heir. I was thinking about it this week because uh, Gary was referencing the storms and like many of you I had a little uh, water in my basement the other week and so I had a little squeegee I was using to try to clean up and I needed to buy a new one and I went to the store and got it but when I brought it home I realized that there was a problem the head of the little squeegee the mop was supposed to attach to the pole and there was supposed to be a little screw that connected them together but that little screw was missing and so it didn't work. But that's not the case of Christ. He has everything. He is the full heir. He has everything he needs because he will receive everything. And since he is the heir, he can restore humanity to a right relationship with God. He gives us, those of us who know him, a share of his inheritance. So we do not have to be anxious about what is to come or what's going to happen in the world around us. One scholar, Michael J. Kruger, put it this way, Jesus is not going to lose the world is his inheritance and he will prevail in the end however dark things may seem jesus is not going to lose what belongs to him if somebody told you then they said um, i'm going to i'm going to give you tomorrow i'm going to give you a football or something and then you hear that somebody else is coming to steal that, that football that's supposed to be yours. Well, you would be upset about it. You'd do everything you could to get it. Well, Jesus has been told he is receiving the world and everything in it, and he's not going to lose it or let it go because he is the heir. We can have hope in him. Not only is he the heir, but we're also told that he was involved in creating the world and the universe. The end of verse 2 says, through whom also he created the world. We don't often think about this Jesus was involved in creation Jesus didn't just pop into existence at that first Christmas he eternally existed we can see this even in the Gospels that tell us the story of Jesus John 1 says in the beginning was the word that's John's word for Jesus the word was with God the word was God he was in the beginning with God and All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Now, what did that look like? How did that work? How did Christ do that? I I can't give those answers in particular. I wasn't there. He was there, not me. This is just a space for us for reverence and awe. And to remind ourselves, our Savior, the one who saved us, drew us to himself, saved us from sin, he was also involved in making us. He made us for himself. The Apostle Paul would write that for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And this action of Jesus actually ties into something else that we're told. Near the end of verse 3, or in the middle of it, we're told that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds, sustains what we see by his powerful word. He's not just a king sitting far away in his castle, but more than that, he's actively upholding his kingdom. What we see would fall apart without him. Without Jesus actively working on our behalf, existence would cease and collapse around us. So we talk about Jesus as a friend. We sang a song, we are a friend of God, and that's wonderful and true. We speak of Jesus as a comforter, someone we can call out to, and amen, that is great, we can do that. But Jesus is also the one who has the power and is holding our very world and universe together. That's not something we can really see. I heard one person say once that Uh, You could see it in a cell. There's a cell, something in a cell that looks like a cross. and I don't think that's what the author here is talking about at all. He's talking about Christ by his spiritual power, his kingly authority. He upholds the universe. Or as the children's song says, truly, he's got the whole world in his hands. So he's upholding the universe, but we're also told that Jesus is said to be the radiance or the brightness of the glory of God of god it's beginning in verse three he is the radiance of the glory of god he is the glorious light of god the father he is an intense brightness it's like when you go into a dark room and you turn on the light switch and you see that light in your eyes and you can't see because it's so bright now normally for us our eyes adjust but with christ they they don't adjust his brightness is always there Again, John would write about this when he was introducing his gospel, explaining who Jesus is. He said that word, Jesus, not only created everything, but became flesh and dwelt among us. He said, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus shows God's glory. Now, unfortunately, not everyone can see that. This one passage from Corinthians, Paul points out that not everyone can see this, but it's true that Jesus shows God's glory. He says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so if we see that, if we recognize Christ for who he is, that That's something that God has brought to us. Until Christ reveals to us God's glory, we too cannot see it. He must work in our hearts to save us. But when he does, then we see, in the words of verse 3, we see that Jesus is the exact imprint, the exact representation of God's nature. He's identical in substance to God's real being, who God is. This idea of an exact imprint, it's like, a stamp or like a picture on a coin. It's it's a picture, a photograph of someone. Yes, that is that person. When you look at Jesus, you see, yes, that is God. He's both the light of God's glory and he has the same image and likeness. It's like the author's running out of ways to describe who Jesus is and how awesome and amazing he is. The point, though, is in Jesus, we have a clear picture of God and of God's character. Because Jesus is fully God in all his attributes, and all his abilities. Later in the Gospel of John, just before Jesus dies, he's having a conversation with his disciples. One of them named Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus has to say to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Both John there, Jesus speaking, and here in the book of Hebrews, we're told that when we look at Jesus, we see God. He is the imprint of his nature, the glory of his brightness. What is God like? You have to look at Jesus. If somebody who's not a believer says, well, I wish I knew something about God, well, read about Jesus, and you'll discover something about God. He is how we see God, and may say that's why I, I often find it disconcerting when I, and upsetting when I hear those who profess to know God but they dismiss Jesus, they play down His words. Say, I don't want to be somebody who's meek and mild and turns the other cheek. I want to be brave and bold like the Old Testament heroes, David, Joshua, and certainly, friends, we are called to be brave and bold for the Lord, absolutely. But according to this text the one who reveals God the best, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who's better than that Old Testament heroes, are Jesus Christ. And in his life, his sacrifice, we see the heart of God. We shouldn't throw away Jesus' words because they do not fit our perspective on life. And if we don't know Jesus, well, I hope this light, this person, is attractive to you. And I pray that he may draw you himself. He can do that because Jesus is better and because his work is finished. God not only has spoken and he's not only God, but his work is finished. Look at the very end of verse three of our passage. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're told here that Jesus purified, He cleansed, He saved His people. He provided and made a way for them to know God. That great God of brightness and glory, this Creator, He took the time to stoop down to earth to save us. He had to live among us. He had to die for us to accomplish it. No other person did this or could do it. He did it alone this idea of purifying us, making us right with God, we'll talk about it more in the book of Hebrews. We see it in Hebrews 9. It tells us if the blood of bulls and goats, if the sprinkling of a defiled sinful person with ashes from a heifer or a cow, if that could sanctify for the purification of flesh, well, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, he offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he offer purify our conscience from the dead works we do for ourselves to instead serve the living God. We're told here that his work is finished. He died in your place to pay the penalty that your sins deserved. Because of his work that's done, that's over now in God's sight, our sins are gone. You can search for them if you want. You could look in your pockets, you could look in every room of your house, but in God's sight, He will not find them. Because if we turn from sin and truly and fully trust in Him, then He will purify us too. Then after His death, after His burial, after He rose to new life, He ascended to heaven to reign with His heavenly Father. And we're told here in verse 3 that He sat down At God's position of favor and honor he sat down at God's right hand and this idea of Jesus finishing going back and sitting down well this is a repeated theme in this book we'll see it again in chapter 10 when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God I hope you hear my emphasis what did Christ do when he got to heaven he sat down why did he do that because his work was finished. Think about it if you're doing a job typically you don't sit down until the job is done. Probably later today I'll, I'll need to mow the grass so I'll go out I'll get out the mower I'll mow the grass in the yard and then I won't sit down yet no I have to put the mower away I have to get out the weed whacker do some weed whacking on the places the mower can't get to. But not time to sit down yet because the work isn't finished. I have to put that away then I go inside, and because I'll be stinky and gross, then I need to take a shower. And then, only then, after all that work is done, then I will sit down. Christ has done all the work. He's in heaven, and now he sits down because his work is finished. That means that God is satisfied. He's pleased with Christ's work. There's nothing else that needs to be done to save us. We'll talk even later in this book about Old Testament priests. And in their work, they were offering sacrifices for people and they couldn't sit down. They had to keep working. But Jesus finished his sacrificial work. It is over. It is done. And now he reigns with supreme authority. He is worth loving. He's worth following. He's worth obeying now. Now, yes, we know that Jesus will come again. And when he comes again, he will reign and rule here on earth. But the work that was needed to make that happen is already done. It's already finished. Jesus said that this would happen when he was on trial and he was asked, is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? He responds in Mark 14, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Before his death, he saw that his work would soon be finished. So if you are not a follower of Christ, then, then hear this, Jesus has done something. His work is done and he can save you. You do not need to rely on your own wisdom, your own strength, your own effort to make it. Jesus has finished the work. And Jesus alone. You can come to know now, if you are a believer in Jesus, I don't know every single struggle, every single temptation, every single thing that pops in your mind that makes you think I don't know if Jesus is better. I don't know what all that is, but I know this truth: Jesus is better. And if you we'll talk about that as we go through the book of Hebrews. But if you doubt that this week, remind yourself: I know Jesus is better because God has spoken. He's spoken by His Son. Jesus is the final word. I know that He is better because He is God. I know that He is better because His work is finished. I know that I can rely on Him because He is better and He alone is worthy.